Thank you, Brother Eric. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Acts Reformed Church. Glad you could join us this morning. If you're here live in person or watching us via internet on video. So I have a question to start off today's sermon and message. What comes to mind when you think of yourself in relation to a baby? Do you see strength or weakness? Toughness or frailty? Do you depend on babies or do you believe babies, if they wish to live, must depend upon you? Quite often at this time, we're done with Thanksgiving. Hope you guys had a wonderful and delightful Thanksgiving with your family. I know it's a different type of uh, celebration this year. You can't, you know, you got to be limited, the whole uh, pandemic and stuff. But, um, but you, you, we, we, we thank our Lord and Savior Jesus for all the blessings that he's bestowed upon us. Uh, we have so much to be thankful for. And um, now that we're approaching Christmas, we start, you know, getting into listening to Christmas music and uh, setting up our Christmas decorations. We start with Christmas cards and nativity scenes depicting the birth of our Savior, conjure up images in the minds of many. Most can't get beyond a cute, tiny baby lying helpless in a manger in Bethlehem. He is to be coddled, but few find him worthy to be worshipped. He is to be smiled at, but few find him worthy to be obeyed. He is to be helped, but few see their need to be helped by him. After all, he's only a baby. And what comes to mind when you think of yourself in relation to a baby? In the first century, most of the people saw Jesus as just another insignificant infant brought into the rough Mediterranean world. But there were few who saw him in a different light. The angels saw him as Savior. Luke chapter 2 verse 11. The Magi saw him as King. Matthew 2 chapter 2. The shepherds saw him as a reason to glorify God. Luke chapter 2 verse 20. Anna saw him as the redemption of, Israel, of Jerusalem. Luke chapter 2 verse 38. Simeon saw, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Luke chapter 2, verse 34. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, said, My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Luke chapter 1, verse 47. As she treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Luke 2, 19. No doubt all these folks saw something special when they saw baby Jesus. Do you? Do you see Jesus through the eyes of the world or through the eyes of faith. As we finish off the book of Malachi today, we're doing chapter 4, 1 through 6, and we'll be completing the book of Malachi. Uh, we're going to get into um, Advent season, and we're going to focus on Jesus for the next few weeks. I mean, we always focus on Jesus here at Acts Reform Church, but we're going to focus on his coming, how he was prophesied from the Old Testament that he would come. Christmas is to celebrate the birthday of Jesus, but he was Hard to find amongst the tinsel of commercialism. During Christmas, everybody's so caught up on gifts. What do I buy for so-and-so? 
Do I have money? But let's focus on Jesus, the Savior of the world. This Christmas, we need to be sure we don't get lost in the secularism of baby Jesus looking track of exactly who this baby really was. Yes, he was fully human. He was a fully human baby, but he was also infinitely much more. He was unlike any baby that ever lived or ever will live. He was God incarnate. Our text in Malachi, as we conclude this wonderful book, will help us to remember this Christmas season as Jesus was a human baby, yet he, we also need to remember that he was God, fully possessing the attributes of wrath and justice and holiness and mercy. This morning, we'll explore each of those awesome attributes in further detail. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Malachi chapter 4, and we will be reading the last six verses. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Test, uh, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning through your word, Lord, that we would be convicted, that we would repent of any sin, of any wrongdoing, Lord, that we would turn to you, Lord, and that you would help us, Lord, to uh, remember you, Lord, during this Christmas, Lord, as you are our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're not going to hear God's Final word for 400 years. This is the closing of the Old Testament. Anticipating the coming of Jesus, God's got a few things on his mind to talk to us or to talk to his people about. Heaven and hell. The Bible, repentance, and men and women. So I'm pretty uh, excited these are, my, these are some really good, important things that we need to talk about. A lot of churches do not talk about them, but they need to be addressed. God always gets the last word. God alone gets the last word. The way the Old Testament ends is the way that history ends. In the, in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, they had a long list of questions for and objections to God, and we went through them all as we were going through the book of Malachi here at church week after week for the last few months. Here's a few of them just to recap. How have you loved us? How have we despised your name? How have we polluted you? How have we worried him? Where is the God of justice? How, can, how have we robbed you? How have we spoken against you? Lots of questions for God. 
Lots of conversations with God, and this is what it was, a conversation with God back and forth. Lots of accusations and lots of arguments towards God. And the book ends, Malachi ends, the Old Testament ends. God's final word for 400 years is that God gets the last word, and, get, and God gets the final say. So this shows us how history will end. In the meantime, we will live in the midst of culture that has objections and quarrels with God. But in the end, God always, always gets the last word. God gets the final say. And that's what God's final word to all humanity history, to all human history is. It's God speaking to us as well as in our own day. So he starts by taking, talking about heaven and hell. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says, For behold, when it says for behold, it's trying to get your attention. Listen, pay close attention, behold. And that's God's way of getting our attention. So let's pay attention. The day is coming, burning like an oven. You're going to hear this language of hell when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming shall, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who t fear my name. So there's two different people, those who fear God's name and those who do not care and are not part of God's people. That it will leave them neither root nor branch. For those who fear my name, there will be another category of people for you who fear my name. Which category are you on? Are you on the ones who fear his name? Or are you on the ones that don't care and, can, and, can, and, and think this is, not, this is not even an important thing? These are God's people, those who fear his name. The son of righteousness, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go leaping like calves from the stall and you shall thread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. He's speaking here about the day. Which day is he speaking about? The day of the Lord. And we've heard that before. The day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? This is one of those big themes of the prophets in the Old Testament. They're leaning toward or forward into something called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is succession of days and events through history that all culminate in the last day. There will be one last day. The last day is the day of judgment. Judgment day. And it's ultimately regarding the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of the dead. The judgment of all people into their eternal faith. Reward in God's presence of punishment in the presence of Jesus. Some will be punished, but some will be rewarded. Which one will you be? Will you be the one punished or will you be the one rewarded? Let's just think about things as we listen today. Everyone will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone, you, me, all of us, we will all give an account to Jesus Christ. Everyone will bow their head and bend their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some for eternal salvation, others for eternal damnation. And that's what the Old Testament means, speaking of the day of the Lord. And also the day of the Lord is the best day for the believer. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you should be excited. You should be happy. The day of the Lord is a good day for you as a believer. 
And the worst day for the unbeliever, if you do not believe, this is the worst day for you forever and ever. It's two sides of the same proverbial coin, the same great and joy for one, terrible and threatening for the other. But which side are you on? There will be eternal burning and wrath for those who are not in Christ. This day, commonly known as the day of the Lord, is referred four times in the final eight verses of Malachi. We can see it in verse chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 1, verse 3, and verse 5, which are the final eight verses of the Old Testament. This theme is carried into the New Testament with tremendous frequency. If we read in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, I mean chapter 2, verse 5, Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says, those who have unrepented hearts are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Are you storing up wrath for yourself if you're unrepentant, if you're a non-believer, if you have not trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Revelation 19 verse 15, chapter 19 verse 15 says, On this day a sharp sword will come from the mouth of Jesus so that with it, he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with an, a rod of iron and he will, and, and, the, and he threads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So if you are here or if you're listening online, live, and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, I need you to know this. You are going to hell. You're going to hell. You might say, that's not a very loving thing to say. You might be like, man, that's pretty mean, Pastor. What's going on? Why are you saying that? Here's the good news. You don't have to go to hell. The bad news is that right now, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not turned from your sin and trusted in him, your eternal faith is now destined for hell. What is hell? The conscious, painful torments of hell. I know hell is not a popular topic to talk about, but it has to be addressed. It has to be spoken of because especially it's spoken of in the bible and we're talking about it because it's in malachi chapter 4 verse 1 the reason that god is so empathetic about this throughout scripture but particularly here is in malachi is we get so preoccupied do we not we get so preoccupied with the present that we forget to anticipate the eternal we get so caught up with the present that we forget to anticipate the eternal we're all eternal beings all of us we will be spending eternity at one place forever, whether in heaven or in hell. God here is going to have his final word for 400 years. And what he wants people to know is that sin won't continue forever. Sin will not continue forever. That life as we know it doesn't continue forever. That there's a day coming when everything changes. Everything will not be the same anymore. And life as we know it comes to an end and the eternal life that is set before us comes. It comes for us. So he likens hell to a fire, to burning. He uses his language, burning like an oven and also a blaze. He's talking here about conscious torment, you guys, conscious torment. Now, some of you will say, well, this is the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. He's different. Jesus comes and Jesus is really sweet, really nice. He might say, man, Jesus is just, you know, he's, he's the one I really want to, you know, follow. 
not the Old Testament God, but it's the same. He's never changed. Jesus actually talks of hell more than anyone else in the whole Bible. More than anyone in the whole Bible. Jesus talks about hell and uses the same language, burning like an oven, a blaze, fiery flame, painful torment. Jesus uses the same language to capture, capture our imagination and to create a sense of urgency in us that, we'll, that we want to avoid that kind of eternal punishment that awaits to us if we do not come to know him. And you're like, man, are you trying to scare me? Are you trying to put some fear in me? Yeah, you should be afraid. You should be terrified if, you're, if you die apart from Christ. Some will use this language to speak of something called annihil annihilationism, which is you cease to exist. And that is after you die, you cease to exist. That suffering goes for a while, then it comes to an end. Well, the burning that is spoken here is not like the burning that you would and I would experience. If you and I put a log on a fire, if we put a fire on, our, on it and it burns out, eventually it will burn out, right? If you go camping or if you're, you're doing a bonfire, it's going to burn out eventually, right? But that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what the Bible speaks about. The burning in hell is not like that. The burning in hell is a supernatural burning. It's something that is so inexplicable because it's something that's eternal forever. It's eternal. So speaking of the same thing at the end of Isaiah, it's interesting that Malachi closes by talking about hell. And Isaiah closes by talking about hell because God always wants us to be thinking about the eternal, thinking about the eternal, not the temporal. And whether or not we're going to be with him or against him, are we with him or against him? That is the question you got to ask yourself. Are you going to receive Christ as Lord and Savior or are you going to reject him and live for yourself for the now, for the temporal, for the moment? Isaiah 66 verse 24 says it this way, their fire shall not be quenched. The fires of hell never go out. The burning and the suffering is eternal and it is unyielding. It is unending forever and ever. Now, we live in a day when I'm not supposed to say that. It's because I love you. Because as pastors, Gerard and myself love you and we want to speak the truth to you. Not deceive you or lie to you. And I want to warn you because your eternal faith, whether or not you have turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, or if you were destined for that kind of eternity. Because we love you, we don't want that for you. We want you to repent. We want you to turn away from your sins, to put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Do it today. Don't put it off for tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You might walk out of here and get in a car accident or something might happen and you don't know. God can call you to himself tonight, tomorrow, at any given moment. But you need to know this. No one is getting away with anything. You might be like, man, people are getting away with things. No, no one is getting away with anything. He says that he will, they will burn like stubble. It's almost like a, like of all of human history is getting stacked up like a cord wood for an eternal burning. This is an interesting metaphor that he, that the Bible uses for humanity, that people who are sinning are not getting away with anything. You might be saying, man, that person over there, so much money doing so many bad things. These people, look at them. They're successful and they're living the good life, right? They're doing everything. Like right now, they're, they're in yachts and they're in the, you know, on the beach traveling, but they're not getting away with it. 
There will be a day when judgment day will come when God will render to each what he has done. They feel like they are, I'm not on fire, I'm not burning. Have you ever heard someone say, man, I'm not on fire, I'm not burning. Nothing happened, nothing's happening to me. I'm getting away with it. People might be like, man, everything's cool. Relax, chill, I'm okay. No, you're not. You're being stacked up, stacked up like cordwood with your, with, with, your, with anybody who is along with you, who doesn't repent. All getting stacked up like, like cordwood, getting away with nothing, just waiting for the day when God's patience comes to an end. God's patience will one day end. God is very patient with us, but it, one day he will, it will end. He's got a long wick. I mean, some of us have very little patience, right? We get so upset and angry for anything, but God has a lot of patience, and we should ask God for patience for our own lives, right? Because we've got to be patient people. But God's patience doesn't endure forever. There's a day when his patience comes to an end. There's a day when he sets humanity on fire for sinning against him and rebelling against him. And the time between today and that day is a season of patience. Here's the truth. We don't know how long that season is. So I would encourage you with a sense of urgency to consider your own faith. We live in a day when you're not supposed to hear that. We're to say that you're basically good. You know, they say, oh yeah, everybody's a good person. We're all good. No, we're all sinful. We're all sinners in the hands of an angry God because we've broken his commandments. We're to say that you're, no one is good. All religion, or people say all religions are basically the same and the only thing that you need to do is go to heaven is to die. That is a lie of the devil. Not all religions are the same. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then what we say is things like, well, we know that they're in a better place because they die. I mean, everyone who ever dies is always a good person and they're in a better place, right? They're never evil, bad, wicked, sinners. Everyone who dies is always an angel. You always see them in pictures of angels with angel, right? Wings. It takes more than your death to go to a better place. It takes the death of Jesus in your place to go to a better place. So he starts with hell. Does he have your attention? Does he should. And he then he talks about heaven. So now it's not all about hell, but let's talk about heaven as well. See, for the non-Christian, this life is as close to heaven as they'll ever get. For the Christian, this is as close to hell as we ever get. You might be going through a, a tough time, trials, tribulations, hardships. That's as close as to hell you'll ever get as a Christian. Now, if you're a non-Christian, this is as close as to heaven. You're having a good time. This is as close to heaven that you will ever see. Upon dying, it gets worse for the non-Christian, for the unbeliever. It gets way worse. And it gets better for the Christian. Isn't that an encouragement if you're a believer? It gets better for you. It might be hard right now, but it will get better. You might be sick with pain, but it's going to get better. All that will be removed in the new heavens. So he not only speaks of hell, he also speaks of heaven. And what, and what I find interesting about this is that most Americans, most people don't believe in hell. 
If you ask people, oh yeah, I don't believe in hell. That's the fairy tale. That's that's uh, imaginary make believe. But they do believe in heaven. A lot of everybody believes in heaven. Isn't that very convenient? Oh yeah, I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in hell. We don't want to think that there will be a judgment. That's why they don't believe in hell because they don't want to think that there will be a judgment. We want to think that there will be mercy. Everybody wants mercy. Nobody wants to receive the judgment that they deserve. Well, there is judgment from Jesus Christ and there's mercy in Jesus Christ. And here, and he's learning, he's uh, leaning for 400 years into the future regarding the coming of Jesus. He's talking about whether or not we will be eternity with him in mercy or we will see him in his justice. And I love the language he uses of heaven. Let's look at heaven. Let me say this. We've done a very lousy, bad job as Christians talking about heaven. We actually hardly ever talk about heaven. Why don't we talk about heaven more? We talk so much about other things, but we don't really talk about how heaven will be and just kind of like think about it, you know, and discuss it and talk about it. I think we need to do more of that as Christians. We are... You would never market a vacation destination the way we have marketed heaven. You'd never do it because nobody would ever buy a ticket. Nobody would want to go there the way we talk. We don't ever, you know, picture it the right way. You know, the picture that most people have is you die and you're hanging in the clouds playing a harp. Isn't that what people's mind is and thoughts are? That's what heaven is? But that is not what heaven is. And some of you think that heaven is just an eternal ethereal state where your body goes into the ground and our soul just goes to be with the Lord. Well, that's an intermediate state, but the eternal state is where the soul comes back to in the body. You will have a real body, a uh, resurrected body, uncorruptible body in heaven. And when it's risen from the dead, Jesus was risen from the dead and our bodies will be risen from the dead like him, like just like Jesus was. And the curse will be lifted and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. So the questions are, can we go swimming in heaven? I'm sure you, we will be able to. Can we climb trees in heaven? Can we throw the ball in heaven? Can we wrestle in heaven? These fun things that we like to do, can we do these things in heaven? I'm sure you probably can. You can do everything in heaven except for sin and experience his, uh, the consequence of sin with things like disease and death. Things like that will not be in heaven, disease and death and sinning. Our picture of heaven should be what this earth was intended to be before sin invaded it and corrupted it. We need a bigger, grander, more biblical understanding of the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God. And he uses two analogies that are, I think, very beautifully explained. He says that heaven will be like that of our glorified, resurrected, perfected bodies. It will be like the sunshine of a new day. The sunshine of a new day. And if you read Revelation, it says that we won't have the sun. There will be no sun in heaven. That actually all the light that will emerge through the new creation will be unveiled. The unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. That will be the radiance that we will have in heaven. So we don't even need the sun because we'll have the son of God. Amen? Amen. I mean, it's mine. Bending, it's breathtaking to have Jesus being the light. No need of the sun. It says that there's healing and running free. But let's go a little bit back to the little baby born in Bethlehem. 
that may bring wrath to the unbeliever. So the unbeliever will receive wrath. But that same baby will bring justice to the believer. Because remember, that baby doesn't stay baby. He grows up. Becomes a man. But justice for what? And how will that justice be dispensed? If life was unfair to Jesus, you might be like, the life right now is very unfair to me. Are we to expect any greater fairness in this world? Absolutely not, because we are not called to trust in the world. We are called to trust in the God that he will hold others accountable for every wrong committed against us. As image bearers of God, we want justice and justice will be accomplished, but it will happen his way and according to his timeline. Not according to what we want, but according to God. He also says that that day will come with healing. With healing? Doesn't that sound great? No more doctors. No more do I wasn't feeling well a few days ago, and I went to go see the doctor. And I was disappointed because the doctor said I'm fine, but I wasn't feeling well. So no more doctors. You know, you might be seeing the doctor very regularly for whatever issue that you might have. But no more doctors in heaven. No more hospitals, no more surgeons, no more ke chemotherapy, no more hospice, no more physical therapy, no more wheelchairs, no more canes, no more walkers. Does this sound like good news? No more prescriptions. It's almost hard to conceive of that world because we're so caught up in this world that it's so fallen and messed up. Sin brings death, and because Jesus conquers death, he brings life. Amen? Healing, healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing, physical healing in totality for all of God's people forever. Is that something to get excited about? I think so. I don't think you guys are too excited about heaven. <laughs> are you guys awake? Are you guys tuned in? The Bible says in the kingdom of God there will be healing. No more sickness, no more suffering, no more death. Then he says that it will be like calves leaping from a stall. Calves leaking from a stall. I mean stall, sorry. Kind of get that picture after a long, cold, hard winter. Springtime comes. And right now we're going through winter. But we will have spring soon. It's getting kind of chilly and cold. Getting used to it, all bundled up. But spring will come sooner than we think. And... When it comes, an animal is born. It's young and alive and vibrant and excited, but it's been penned up in a stall because it's winter. And finally, the stall is open and the animal is allowed to run free. How excited they are to be able to run free. God says that we'll be like that at the resurrection of the dead. Think about it. Just picture it in your imagination. We're going to be like that, free. Finally, out of the tomb, finally out of the coffin, finally out of the curse, fallen body, finally into the state that God intended when he made all things very good before sin, made everything very bad. What an amazing imagery that is. It's the day of the Lord. That is the day of the Lord. For us as Christians, it should be an exciting, joyful day to we, that we long for. Jesus, come. Amen. Every day that you live between now and then is in preparation for that day. You should be, right now you're getting prepared for that day. We're all getting prepared. What will that day be like for you when the Lord Jesus comes back, when he calls you out of the grave and he came out of his grave? Are you going 
to hell or are you going to heaven? Are you going to suffer forever or be blessed forever? Will you be like the one who's living like living in an un, a never-ending blazing furnace or like the one who is healed with sunshine on their face and joy in their heart and a sweetness in their step? Which one will you be? If you've not turned from sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, who is God, become, became, who became a man, lived without sin, died on the cross for your place, for your sins, and rose as your Savior, then you're destined for hell instead of heaven. It's, an interest, it's interesting because a lot of people don't even think about these things, particularly young people who are healthy and strong, and they think they're going to live forever. They say things like, that's a long ways away. Or maybe you're thinking, man, that's a long time. I'm, be, I'm all right right now. I'm just cool. I'm chilling, right? That's a long ways away. I'll get to it later. Oh, yeah, I'll repent later. I'll trust in Jesus later. But do you even know if you're going to get to that moment? You do not know when your day of death is coming, and you should not presume upon God's grace. There should be a sense of urgency. But if God is laying out his this opportunity, hell, hell or heaven, damnation or salvation, you should turn from sin and trust in Jesus right now. And the rest of your days live in the light of that day, the great day, the day of the Lord. So today, if you haven't repented and put your trust in Christ, I beg, I urge, I plead with you to do so because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You may be tuning in from on the Internet right now and just kind of scrolling through and catching in. Repent today and put your faith and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Let's go to verse 4. Remember the law of my servant, servant Moses. He starts with heaven and hell and then he proceeds to the law and the prophets. Again, this is God's final word for 400 years. Imagine God not speaking for 400 years. Being silent for 400 years. And this is the last thing he says. It's pretty, pretty important for us to pay attention to. So that's what he's going to back to the writings of Moses, which are the first five books of the Old Testament, the statutes and rules. There are 614 of them in the first five books of the Old Testament. I command him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So here he's talking about the law. He's talking about Moses and the prophet Elijah. The law is Moses and the prophet is typified by Elijah. So what the law, so what does what the law does is the law is God's word. The law is God's word. And it is God giving us his standard. God is giving us his standard. God is righteous. God is Good. God writes down, this is why I made you and this is how you were supposed to live. And if you disobey my law, my rules, then you're in sin. Again, this is the world God made. This is not our, our rules or our ideas or our thoughts. God made the world. He said, these are my rules. Live by them. If you do not live by them, then you're in sin and you're in disobedience against me, your maker, your creator. So, First John says it this way, that the breaking of the law is sin. So all of us here have broken God's law and we're sinners. 
None of us has kept God's law. None of us has loved God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We've had idols in our lives, right? Other things that take God's place before him. And there's a whole bunch of other commandments that we've broken. The law sets the standard, which is perfection. God's calling us to perfection, but none of us are perfect. We're all unperfect. We're all messy. We're all sinful. We judge ourselves by his standard. At any point that we fall short of his standard, it's sin. We miss the mark. We're sinners. This leads to condemnation. This leads to judgment. And this leads to death. That's why there's death in this world. Because Adam and Eve disobeyed God's commandment. They ate of the fruit that was prohibited. And death entered, to the, death entered into the world through Adam and Eve. So what do we do? Well, the prophets come and they tell us to turn from our sin and to trust in the Lord. They tell us that we have disobeyed the Lord, but that the Lord is coming as Jesus Christ to save us. So we should trust in him and give our sin to him so that he will pay the penalty that we should have instead paid. And that God will be mercy, merciful and gracious and that his justice and his love will kiss at the cross where Jesus dies in our place because Jesus fulfills the law. He never sins at all. Jesus never sinned. He's the only sinless person to ever live on this earth. He goes to the cross for all us lawbreakers that, so that he might die in our place, that we might live with his righteousness. Amen? That's the gospel. That is good news for us. Let us continually be reminded of that because it's important. We easily forget. Let's go to verses 5 and 6. Let's wrap up this message. And so the prophets are always preaching repentance. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. You're headed towards hell. You're living in the path of God's wrath. So turn and run to Jesus. That's the point and the message of the prophets. He mentions Moses and he mentions Elijah. Elijah is one of the towering prophets figures in the Old Testament. He's an amazing guy. He's the guy who actually didn't die. He did not die. There's only two guys in the Old Testament who didn't die, Enoch and Elijah. Elijah preaches publicly. He goes up against the prophets of Baal. He's actually got a sense of humor. He holds his ground under intense scrutiny and opposition. And unlike most prophets that were killed, he doesn't die. Because if you're a prophet, you're going to die. You're very unpopular and they will go after you and kill you. We'll, we'll see a little bit more what happens to other prophets. He holds his ground under intense scrutiny and opposition. God sends a limo. He sends a chariot and takes him up to heaven. And there goes Elijah. He does not die. So today Elijah is apparently in the presence of the Lord. And what God says here is in the end of Malachi is I'm sending Elijah. And you're like, what do you mean he's sending Elijah? Let's unpack that. For 400 years, they go by and God is silent. He's not saying anything. And then this guy called John the Baptist, the baptizer, shows up and he's preaching repentance of sin and preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. Just like Malachi chapter 3 and 4 promised. So then Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11 verse 13 and 14. For all the prophets and the law all 
right? So prophets that include Elijah, the law, there's Moses, and we're back to Malachi chapter 4. Prophesize until John, that's John the baptizer. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus points out that John the Baptist is Elijah. It's different men, so it's not like a reincarnation. I'm not, we're not talking about reincarnation because the Bible denounces and does not say that there's reincarnation. It's different men. They're not the same. But the same power of the Holy Spirit working through them, anointing and appointing them for some prophetic ministry to preach and call people to repentance of sin and receiving of Jesus. You get that? So that's why he says, in the spirit and the power of Elijah... So Elijah's one guy, John's another guy. They're two different guys, but the Holy Spirit is working through them quite similarly. So ultimately, John dies. They behead him. That's what happens to a prophet. They behead him. He speaks the truth. He speaks out sin. He calls people to repentance, and they don't like it, and they call for his death. Elijah, a fearless man, the, one, the only way you become a fearless man is when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Or a, a fearless woman. That's if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're in prayer and you're in the Word and you're just in constant communion and in touch with God. This man Elijah is amazing and what God is wanting is for all his men to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to have courage like Elijah. Let's be bold. Let's call people we know to repentance if we know that if we love them and we care about them, we will want to speak the truth to them, right? Family, friends, co-workers, fr people who come into our path. We want to tell them to repent and to turn to Christ because we love them, because we care about them, because we want them to know Christ and know the love of God. And it takes a lot of courage to speak out against sin. It takes courage. You might be like, man, I'm, I'm, I don't know. what They're not going to like me. They're going to hate me. They're going to shun me. You got to speak against sin. You got to be faithful to God and to his word, and not be fearful of what man can do to you. You and I, we are to practice repentance every day because we fail God every day. There's not a day that we're perfect. There's a day every day we mess up, and it's okay. God's grace and mercy is there for us. We are to see this sin in our own life, and then we are to preach repentance, inviting others to repent, of their sin. If we preach repentance but don't practice it, we're hypocrites. If we don't preach or practice repentance, we're heretics. We are to be honest about the sin in our own life and be honest with others about the sin in their life. And that's why we have Tuesday nights called Raw for the Man at 6 p.m. We invite you to tune in via Zoom right now. Um, we talk about our sin. We talk about our shortcomings. We talk about how we mess up. We talk about how... We need to uh, repent and put, our, and put again our we trust into Jesus and what he's done for us. And we pray for one another and we encourage one another. And I'm sure the women do that too on Thursdays. So tune in with the men or the women and get connected and be able to confess our sins to one another. We are to turn from our sin and to implore others to turn from their sin. When it comes to repentance, we need to repent of our rebellion and our religion. For some of you, the sin that God wants to deal with is rebellion. You're just living an open, defiant life. You call it tolerance, diversity, pluralism, enlightenment, spirituality, 
being true to yourself. You've got all kinds of sayings for it or justifications, but your real issue is rebellion. You're not doing what the law of God says. You're doing what you say you should do. You become a law unto yourself. You're in plain old rebellion against God. I need to repent of that. In addition, we need to repent of religion. Maybe some of us here at Acts Reformed Church need to repent of religion, or if you're a Christian and watching, religion is where we don't see our sin. We have no sin. We're, ah, no, we're, we're good. So we only see their sin, but not ours. It's where we want people to change, but we don't want to change ourselves. Where We don't want to be humble. We want to be proud. We don't want to be under God's authority. We want to ex exercise authority like we're God, telling everyone else what to do and making and enforcing rules that God never made. You become a legalist. You become religious. When Jesus came, he certainly met resistance from rebellious people, but the strongest resistance that he met was from religious people. And the prophets stand up and they preach against the rebellion and against the religious. To say in our terms, they preach against the left and the right. Against both. Usually what happens is the left preaches against the right and the right preaches against the left and the prophet preaches against them both. The rebellious people and the religious people. What do you think that means for the prophet? They get shot by the left and the right and that's why rebellious and the religious come together to murder Jesus. They don't come together for anything but they come together to murder Jesus. And Elijah is a man who preaches repentance, and it's met with resistance. Anytime you preach repentance, you will be met with resistance. When I'm out there open air preaching on college campuses and telling the students to repent, to put their faith in Christ, they're, they're resisting. They don't want to hear it. They're ridiculing. They're saying, get out of here. We don't want to hear this. And they, don't, they start resisting. They don't want it. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. It ends with verses 5 and 6. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Some of your translations will say curse. I think they translated it best there. It says a culture is ruined and a people is ruined. A legacy is ruined and a heritage is ruined. Right now families are really in bad shape in our country and probably in the world. It's all destruction if, they, if the dads don't love their kids and the kids don't love their dads. If their home is a mess, culture, society will be a mess as well. This is timely for us to hear. You look at all the social problems, the ills and the evils, and God says, I got an answer to you as a father, as a dad. Dad, can you do what institutions and governments and organizations cannot do? The family is the first government. That's why as a man, if you're a man, you're the head of the household. It all falls and rises on you. You're the one responsible as the head of the household. God holds you accountable for your family. The family is the first government. The father is the first leader. God holds the man responsible for their family and for their legacy. You got a huge responsibility as a father. The number one thing that is needed for social change is men to love their own children, to be good fathers, and for children to honor and listen to and obey 
and love their dad. Is this still an issue? Is, is it an issue in your life? How are you doing as a father? Are you being a good father? Are you being a biblical, godly father? If not, repent. How many of you would have been nice to have a dad, let alone a dad whose heart was for you? When he's talking about a heart, he's talking about the control center, the seat, the sum, the center of who we are. The Bible speaks of the heart more than 900 times. Out of the overflow of the heart comes life. Proverbs says it in a variety of ways. Here's the big idea. Look at the man. If you see different kinds of men in the church and you see in the culture out there in the world, you know that the Holy Spirit is at work in the men and the men are yielding to the Holy Spirit. We want to be men who are full of the Holy Spirit. Godly men who read our Bibles with our kids, who teach them the Bible, who answer their questions, who love them, who instruct them, who guide them. How do you know that the Holy Spirit is at work in children? How, see how they respond and, and react to their father. One of the evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit is the condition and nature of the family, particularly the relationship between the father and the children. That'll tell you a lot. And that's why the Bible even says if you want to be an elder, you got to manage your household well. Because if, if you're not being a good father, how are you going to be a good shepherd to the church? Well, it starts with the fact that God is a father. God is our father. He's already told us this in Malachi chapter 1. He said he loves us and he, I'm a father. That's what God says. Told us in Malachi 2 that I am your father. God is a father. God is the father, the perfect father. That's where we should look to, to see how we should be as fathers ourselves, as men. Look to God. Obviously, we will fall very short, but we should still strive to follow the way that God has called us to do this job. Even when it says that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, it's using the familiar language when Jesus teaches us to praise his our Father. He's teaching us that God is our Father and we approach him like sons and daughters, which are his children. So this Christmas, as we think about the greatest gift that God has ever given us, which is his Son, Jesus Christ, the Father has given us the greatest gift that we could ever receive. And we gaze upon the face of baby Jesus. You might have a manger underneath your tree or somewhere around your tree or your house or wherever it is that you, know, that you will celebrate Christmas. Will you, like the world, laugh at him, coddle him, and dismiss him? Or will you, like it says in the final chapter of Malachi, embrace him as God in the flesh, possessing the fullness of wrath? Because this baby grows up and he will have wrath and justice, and holiness, and mercy. For those of you who fear the Lord, will you see this Christmas? Praise the God who gave himself to deliver you from his wrath. Vindicate your suffering, conform you to his holiness, and engulf you in his mercy. That's what God has done for us. And for those of you without Jesus as your Lord and Savior, will you believe the scriptures? Because everything that we're talking about this morning today is from the scriptures, it's from the Bible. Will you believe the scriptures? Will you realize that God in his infinite mercy called you to be here today and to hear this message? Will you heed his warning? Will you repent of your sins and turn to him before the coming day of destruction, the day of the Lord? 
Again, the day of the Lord will be a wonderful, joyful day for those who are in Christ, a terrifying, dreadful day for those who are without Christ. Will you place your faith in him before it is too late? While you're breathing, there's still hope. The day your breathing stops, there's no more hope for you. How can we have such assurance of our future home and positive standing with God when the final word in Malachi verse chapter 4, verse 6 is the word curse? That's the last word. At the close of the Old Testament, we are left hanging, anticipating, searching for a resolution. But after 400 years plus, God broke his silence. He sent his promised messenger to clear the way. He sent another prophet. He sent John the Baptist upon seeing Jesus. said, Behold, listen to this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? John chapter 1, verse 29. That first Christmas, God has given us a gift. That gift was Jesus born to die for sin. That gift was God himself for you and for me. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks because you have given yourself, Lord, to us, Lord. On that cross, you died for our sins. You paid the penalty, Lord, you, that we deserve, Lord. We deserve your wrath and your justice, Lord. We deserve hell, Lord. And you've loved us by sending your, your son to die on the cross to be our substitute, Lord. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. We have so much to be thankful for in our lives, Lord. May we never cease to give you thanks, Lord, for all the blessings that you've given us. But ultimately, the greatest blessing is eternal life, Lord, that we get to be with you forever, Lord, on the day on your day, Lord, the day of the Lord, we will be with you. It will be a joyful and amazing day, Lord, that we will be able to be in your presence, Lord. And you will be shining before us, Lord. And we give you thanks for all the things, Lord, that you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.